What I would like to talk about this evening is uh, impermanence and a little touch of emptiness. When I began to think on giving a talk on impermanence, I realized really it had been several years since I had given a talk on impermanence. Um, Not that I don't mention it now and again, or I mention about things changing, arising and passing, I do mention it. But it has been several years since I'd actually given a talk about impermanence. And I thought, well, why, why is that so? Because clearly impermanence is a very... Understanding impermanence is a very central part of this practice. It's certainly very central to understanding Buddha Dharma. Um, it's the basis of so many other insights. And I realized that the reason I'd been so long in giving a talk about impermanence is because I assume that everybody knows it that everybody understands impermanence, that maybe everybody is an expert on impermanence, and I actually have nothing new to say about it. And the other thought I have is sometimes assume that, because I assume that everybody is an expert on impermanence, I also assume that if I'm going to just talking about impermanence, people are going to kind of groan and say, well, you know, this is so basic. You know, I've done retreats before, or I've read this and that, and I heard all about impermanence. And now I really, you know, I really want to hear some higher dharma, you know, some more profound dharma. Anyway. I'll put aside those assumptions. And firstly, I would say that, yes, it is, of course, totally true that understanding impermanence is one of the most basic understandings in this practice and this teaching. It is one of the most fundamental understandings. And it is not that there is endlessly new things to say about impermanence. But I think probably would also agree that there is somehow a difference between knowing something and truly understanding it. And this is why it is worth going back again and again to those aspects of our experience that all of us share and which influence us deeply. If we find ourselves in our lives or in our meditation continuing to get caught up in grasping or in resistance, then I think we can agree that there is something about the understanding of impermanence that we didn't quite get. I think if we find that inwardly and outwardly we experience ourselves as being fearful or as being controlling, 
then I think it is fair to assume that although we may know intellectually all about change, all about rising and passing, all about impermanence, that there is some way that that knowing hasn't really completely filtered down into the deepest levels of our consciousness in a way that actually changes our lives, that actually brings about a transformation in our inner experience. To deeply understand impermanence, we can say it's one of the most profound insights in this practice. It is an insight which brings about very dramatic and very immediate changes in our life and in our mind. It is an insight which is extraordinarily powerful when impermanence is deeply understood. Powerful enough to bring about some very profound transformation. Certainly the understanding of impermanence deeply means that the degree of pain, the degree of conflict, that the degree of suffering that we experience outwardly and inwardly would really be dramatically minimized. Understanding impermanence, that insight, it is also an open door to many other insights. It is an open door to understanding emptiness, suchness. It's an open door to understanding renunciation. It is an open door to understanding selflessness. It is, I feel also, that it's the understanding of impermanence that is really the basis of a very selfless kind of loving and compassion and generosity in our lives. Now when we see, you know, even if it is only intellectually, what the understanding of impermanence can actually offer to us, you know, we would assume that, you know, in seeing that, we would become very enthusiastic about impermanence. We would think that we become very enthusiastic about pursuing or exploring the understanding of impermanence very wholeheartedly because we see that it's an insight that promises happiness and it's an insight that promises a great deal of freedom. Now, there are times in our meditation and in our lives, of course, when we are very enthusiastic about impermanence. When we have an unpleasant mental state, it is very reassuring to say to ourselves, well, this is on its way out. This is going to end. This is going to change. This is empty. When we have a difficult sitting, it's very nice to think about endings. When we have a contact with a person who we really dislike, you know, impermanence is wonderful news for us. 
you know, this is not going to continue. When we're in contact with patterns inwardly of judgment or anger, greed, patterns that we find very difficult, we become so worried about impermanence. You know, we say to ourselves, you know, this is arising and passing, this is empty, this isn't a process of change. And then we, in those moments, particularly moments of conflict, moments of difficulty, moments of stress, those are the moments when we are happy about impermanence. There are also other moments, I think, in our meditation in our lives when we actually really understand the wisdom of impermanence. That understanding the the ebb and flow of life, the arising and the passing, the beginnings and endings, that when we are able to live in harmony with that flow, when we are really in touch with and, and in harmony with that rhythm, our lives have much harmony. Our lives have a great deal of happiness. We actually renounce an enormous amount of struggle. And we have glimpses, certainly in our practice, of that quality of harmony, of just letting things be, of being in touch with things as they are, without making demand upon the present moment or upon ourselves, about how things should be. And we probably also realize that the most peaceful moments in our meditation are those moments when we are most clearly in touch with the way things are, just as they are, which is changing, which is arising and passing and moving. And yet, there's this kind of contradiction that can exist, that we can intellectually acknowledge the wisdom of impermanence, that at times we have real understandings of it, at times we have direct experience of it and know that that understanding brings harmony. And yet there's this other extreme where we see how much of our lives we can really give in a way that's dedicated to avoiding understanding impermanence. That our whole life, so much of our lives can be a a real commitment to avoiding understanding impermanence as it applies to us. Because it is clear that to really understand impermanence in every area of our lives, this would be very challenging to us. It would mean for each one of us that we really have to re-examine how we live our lives, the choices we make, what we give value to, what we give time and energy to. Each of us would really need to do that in the light of understanding impermanence. This is not such or always a welcome thing to do. We can see how much, you know, often we live with a kind of assumption of immortality, of invincibility, of pretending that we are somehow exempt 
or removed from this whole flow of impermanence and change that is all very well. It applies to everything and everybody else. But please, may I be excused? You know that often we have this kind of way of living. We think almost we're immortal. Now, we know this is not possible. We know this is not true. You know, there's that that wonderful story in the in the Indian epic, the Mahabharata, where, where he's asked, you know, what is the most wondrous thing in the world? And the answer is that the most wondrous thing in the world is that a person can look around them, see sickness, see aging, see death, see change, and think that none of this happens to me. There is a way of living where we try to divorce ourselves, remove ourselves from the implications of impermanence. It is a way of living where, of course, we can give so much time and so much energy to getting, to possessing, to gaining. It's a way of living, actually, where we take a great deal for granted the people we care for, the people we love, the people we are close to, that we somehow assume that this is automatically so, that they will always be there, that this requires no care. It's a way of living, too, where we can become very intense about our opinions and our arguments and our debates about right and wrong and true and untrue, as if this is really what is so important in our lives. And of course, the biggest expression of this belief in invincibility is the incredible, absolutely awesome amount of energy we can give to trying to rearrange and manipulate our world to suit our desires. Now, we can see how much of our life we can really give to these pursuits. And we think, well, what is all of this effort a statement of? It is not clearly a statement of understanding <coughs> impermanence. Instead, what it is trying to do, or what is it, it is a statement of, is a desire to make our world as solid, as secure, as safe, and as predictable as possible. It is a way of looking for reliability in the unreliable, looking for predictability in the unpredictable, looking for security in that which is insecure, and looking for solidity in that which is actually very transparent. We go to great lengths, or can go to great lengths in our lives, to try and to find and create this appearance of something solid in ourselves, something solid and unchanging in our world, whether it is these kind of grosser efforts of, you know, 
cosmetic surgery to defy aging and, you know, this endless physical personality rearrangement. Or whether it is in a more subtle way that we hold on to our opinions and our experiences and our beliefs and our images. Sometimes I think that holding and that grasping is a little bit of a puzzle for us. Because we do know in our meditation that, and in our lives and in pretty well everything, that holding and that grasping is painful. It's basically painful. It's a painful experience to grasp hold of things. And we wonder, well, why, why do we do it? You know, it's like, you know, do we sit here and beat our heads against the wall and think, you know, we don't mistake this for pleasure, you know, but yet inwardly we find ourselves doing these things which are actually painful. They hurt. And so it's sometimes this case of why don't we learn from that? You know, if it's really painful, why do we do it? And I think the reasons for, for holding and for grasping are very much the same reasons that we try to resist understanding impermanence. Because grasping and resisting understanding impermanence, both of those things, really give us a kind, reassure us about control basically what they do. They reassure us about continuity, about control and continuity. They give us an appearance of things being safe and solid and known. Now, we see, of course, the movement of grasping in many areas in relationship to our thoughts and plans about the future, we see grasping in the ways that we may find ourselves dwelling upon the past. And we see grasping in relationship to the present, to the thoughts, feelings, experiences we have, to even to the last sitting that we have. How often grasping creates this desire for continuity. You know, if you've worked through the hindrances, say, in the first couple of days of a retreat, how often there's that feeling, oh, I've done that, now that's finished, and now I'm going on to something else, and that's not going to arise, you know, or if we've had a, a, a wonderful sitting, you know, what happens when we're kind of sitting there waiting for it to continue? How often there's this real yearning for continuity, to create continuity. Now, we know that nothing that we actually do not our greatest hopes, not our greatest fantasies, not even the most intense clinging, that nothing that we do actually stops the tide of impermanence. We know this. But it's so reassuring to do something, to feel that we're doing something. It's like that Nasruddin story, you know, where Nasruddin is standing outside of his house throwing breadcrumbs around. And his neighbor comes and says, Nasruddin, what are you doing throwing all this bread outside of your house? And he says, ah, it keeps the tigers away. And the neighbor says, but Nasruddin, there are no tigers in this area. And Nasruddin says, it's effective, isn't it? 
This is what some acts what we do with with grasping. We think we're keeping the tigers away. We think, of course, we're not alone in this ritual. You know, we have our culture engaged in keeping the tigers from the door, even though there are no tigers. Why do we think that there are? What is it that actually frightens us about impermanence? What is it that actually frightens us about not having any continuity? It is not the actuality of impermanence, but much more the idea, the idea of it. If we did acknowledge deeply the nature of impermanence, actually we will feel very obliged to let go because it would seem really silly to hold on to things. You know, we would actually feel obliged to let go because it would actually seem so silly, like trying to keep tigers away. We would feel obliged to let go especially and this is what really I think is really at the heart of the matter. We would especially feel obliged to let go of our addiction to pleasure and to continuity. And I think truly this is at the heart of grasping and at the heart of defying impermanence. That we would need to let go of our addiction to pleasure and our demand for continuity. This is really fearful at times to us. Because often we feel that if we don't control ourselves and the world through grasping and through demanding continuity, then we are essentially going to be a victim. That we are going to be controlled by other people, or by these demons within ourselves, of our thoughts and our feelings. And so through grasping, through avoidance, through our strategies, we try to maintain that position of control. Because I think many people, you know, I mean, on a conscious level, they say, well, you know, I'm not frightened of being, not being in control. And yet I think underneath it there's this kind of imagination and suspicion of what terrible things might happen if we weren't in control. We might be overwhelmed, we might become sort of raging, uh, angry people, you know, throwing barbs at everyone in the meditation room. We might be swamped by all the kind of skeletons from our past, we might kind of sink into passivity, we might become a thoroughly kind of despicable, unlikable kind of person, we might be hurt if we're not in control, we might be deprived. I think that all these kind of unconscious, sort of often very conscious fears, vivid fears about what will happen if we don't stay in control. And then, of course, when we have those fears, what actually we do, we see 
pain and impermanence. We equate impermanence with pain. We start to think of all the painful things that happen to impermanence. You know, that impermanence means loss, it means separation, it means loneliness, it means deprivation, it means being out of control. Of course, when we think in this way, then it's no wonder that we struggle so heroically to find solidity, to find continuity, to find predictability. In Romania last year, a man died and his funeral was in process and he was being carried to the gravesite when the people who were carrying him heard some sounds from inside his coffin and they quickly put him down and opened the lid and lo and behold, this poor fellow was not dead after all. And it took three doctors to confirm that he wasn't dead. He was sitting there saying, I'm not dead. And they called three doctors to confirm that he was not dead. And then it took three weeks to convince the authorities that he was not dead and for him to be allowed to be alive again. Now, this sounds like another Nazarene story, but it is not. It is actually a true story. And I think what it is about is how quickly our beliefs become so solid about other people, about ourselves, and about life that sometimes trying to change our beliefs that are based upon grasping is really like picking at concrete with a toothpick. Our beliefs about who we are, some of them have a long history, some of them are formed on the basis of the present. What our beliefs are based upon is, of course, isolating particular thoughts particular feelings, particular experiences, grasping hold of them and saying, this is who I am. This happens in relationship to ourselves. It certainly happens in relationship to other people. One of the most interesting things about a silent retreat is how quickly in silence and supposedly no eye contact we can form these incredible images about our fellow yogis. You know, this person is like this, you know, they look a kind of surly type, you know, or, you know, they look kind of uptight, they look very nice, they're a very nice person, look, they just they smile at me, you know, and everyone has nice clothes. And of course, one of the most wonderful things about ending a silent retreat is often to find how totally off our images and our beliefs are. And yet, they are experienced as being so real and so solid. And we act towards other people and towards ourselves on the basis of who we believe ourselves to be and who we believe another person to be. One of the things we are most reluctant to renounce often is our beliefs about who we are or about others. Because in many ways, to have our beliefs disturbed or challenged or or questioned in some way means that we must open to what we do not know. We must open to what is unknown to us, the unfamiliar. 
the unknown must open our hearts to learning. And there's not a great deal of control in that. This is why often we are reluctant to renunciate. You know, they did one of these surveys in America a few years ago, you know, these silly surveys about, you know, what the average American thinks or likes or whatever. So they did this survey in America, you know, questioned a few thousand people about asking them, have you ever had a mystical experience? You know, these are just people in the stores and people on the street. And to the, to the interviewer's great surprise, it turned out that a very large percentage of the average American population had indeed had some form of mystical experience in their life. A surprising percentage, isn't it? 70% or something. And of those people who'd had a mystical experience, 95% said they never wanted to have another one. <laughs> but that was quite enough. <laughs> it is not so easy for us to open to the unknown, to what is unfamiliar to us. There are a few things I would just like us to reflect upon, a few equations shall we say, basic equations in this practice. The renunciation of control is an openness to learning. The basic equation. To understand impermanence, to understand happiness and love. To live in harmony with the unpredictable is to live in peace. And to understand the nature of insubstantiality, the lack of solidity, is not fearful. It is actually joyful. And to not hold on to anything anywhere is actually to be very profoundly free. So what difference would these equations actually make in our lives? and actually making our experience right now, if we were able to take them to heart, not just intellectually know them, but to actually take them to heart. What difference would it make in your experience right now in this retreat not to grasp hold of anything? Not to grasp hold of anything anyway. What difference would it make in your experience right now in this retreat not to cling to control, not through strategies, not through resistances, not through avoidance, not to cling to control anywhere. What difference would it make in your experience in this retreat right now simply to connect again and again with what is arising and what is passing, passing just to be open to that unpredictability, to that unknown, without expectation, now, inevitably, in this practice, all of us come across these equations and understand these equations. As we sit, we experience very directly the nature of impermanence, of what it means to let go of control, of what it means to allow things to be. 
we hear a sound and it's gone. A sensation arises, it's gone. A thought arises, we pay attention to it, it's gone. It is actually with attention, it is really difficult to make anything stay the same, to remain, to continue, to be solid. No matter how wonderful the sitting is, it ends. No matter how terrible the sitting is, it's in the process of changing into something else. What we do experience very directly in this practice, of course, is birth and death arising and passing, that nothing is untouched by this essential rhythm. And I think one of the greatest gifts of our practice is that it teaches us to understand birth and death, that every beginning needs an ending for it to begin, that every ending is simply the start of a new beginning. It's not negative, it is not positive, it is just what is. It teaches us to be here fully. That the only way we can be here fully is to let go of what has already gone by. The only way we can be here fully is to no longer yearn for that which is yet to come. It's very liberating. It's very liberating being here fully. It lets die guilt and anticipation. It lets die remorse and fantasy. It allows us to be so deeply connected just with what is and to open to that. It is a wondrous revelation to be here fully. There's never any sense of anything missing, anything incomplete, anything deprived in that. We do this in our practice. We let go again and again and again. Sometimes reluctantly, sometimes with fear. But often still there's a feeling that in some way I am holding myself apart from this letting go from this unfolding process, that these are my sensations that I'm letting go of, my feelings I'm letting go of, my thoughts I'm letting go of. Sometimes we make these decisions, I'm going to let go of this, as if this is somehow a kind of separate process. We sometimes feel what we I don't want something to end, so I won't let go of it. I don't want something else to arise so I'll do what I can to not have it arise. We hold ourselves, feel that we hold ourselves apart, and yet that separation is so false. How can we hold ourselves apart in any way as if impermanence and birth and death applies to everything else in the world of objects but somehow doesn't apply to me? What is that center? What is that feeling? Who is it that I feel to be holding separate from this unfolding process? I, who I think myself to be, who I perceive myself to be, who I believe myself to be, it's not separate from that process of birth and death. 
There's no continuity either in the world of I. But sometimes we experience that in the meditation, you know, that things are arising and passing so quickly, and the sense of I is arising and passing so quickly, that there doesn't feel to be anything to hold on to, and it feels like everything kind of shatters and breaks apart, like there is nothing to really find a foothold in. And sometimes that is a fearful experience. And sometimes, too, it's an experience that leads to a kind of despair. Sometimes in looking at that process of everything, of every birth and death, every arising, passing, where we think, well, then everything's so pointless. You know, what is the point? I mean, what is the meaning in developing anything, in cultivating anything, in nurturing anything, if it's all going to dissolve anyway? So that reaction and the fear, the reaction of fear, is the symptom of the mind that is still holding itself apart and that is really unwilling to let go of control. Birth and death shows us emptiness, it shows us satma. Impermanence reveals to us transparency. It is hard to find any substantiality in the eye in that unfolding process of birth and death. Any thought, any feeling, any belief which is isolated, it is difficult to take hold of that and say, well, this is who I am, because we see that that thought is changing. It is arising and passing, and the, the angry eye, the sad eye, the grieving eye, the happy eye, the enthusiastic eye, the excited eye, it is arising and passing only in relationship to that particular thought, that particular feeling. You see that the, the nature of I, the belief about who I am, exists in relationship to a thought, to a feeling, to a sensation, which is in the process of changing. And it doesn't, it's just as easy for us to see. We don't have, you know, I mean, how often do we have a really, you know, excruciatingly painful feeling arising and, and an eye somewhere else that says, I'm so happy, I'm so happy. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just, you know. I mean, how often do we have, you know, a really blissful sitting and in the middle of it sitting a depressed eye, you know, sitting there with this really bad news, you know, it's just terrible. It's not so. This is not our experience in the meditation. You see the eye in relationship to its thoughts, to its feelings, to its beliefs, to its images. It is hard to find any kind of center. But this is not just inwardly. It is hard really to find that self anywhere in the world. We look, we see when we walk around and when we move through the world, what we have, of course, is a name for every form. And even those names seem to give us some kind of solidity, you know, this is the way it is. Look at it closely. 
we can't continue to mistake those names for solidity. We can't continue to mistake those names for continuity for self. So what is left if we do not control? What is left if we don't grasp? What is left if we don't engage endlessly in strategies? There's a word I would use which I think is important to understand clearly, which is surrender. Now, this is, I, I appreciate this is a difficult word, you know, because I think when we hear the word surrender, you know, we think of ourselves belonging to some cult and, you know, somebody's telling us what to do, you know, or, or we think of ourselves, you know, a kind of spacey awareness, you know, drifting, you know, from one object to another and from one mental state to another and say, oh, I'm going with the flow, you know, I've surrendered, you know. But meanwhile, of course, what we are in that is simply a kind of more enlightened victim. You know, we're still being overwhelmed, we're still being overpowered, we're still being more conditioned, but we feel more spiritual about it, you know, that this is, you know, just happening, you know. But this surrender, I think, doesn't have anything to do with this kind of spacey awareness, you know, or this kind of drifting. Instead, I feel surrender, if we really understand it deep, deeply, is a, is a real embodiment of wisdom. It can be a true embodiment and expression of understanding deeply the nature of impermanence and the nature of sajna. It is clear comprehension. There's great clarity. There's great awareness. There is a profound sense of being present in the presence of all things as they are. And what surrender is about, of course, is the renunciation of the investment that we have in our experiences and our thoughts and our feelings because of what they seem to be offering to us in terms of pleasure, letting go of the investment in our thoughts and our feelings and experiences because they seem to be challenging us in some way because of unpleasant. Surrender is the absence of prejudice in relationship to all things. The absence of prejudice in relationship to all things means actually a great wholeheartedness of presence. It is not likes and dislikes. It is not about aversion and, and grasping. It is about a wholeheartedness of being present. It is not just the world of objects, this floating world of objects to which surrender applies. Who is making the choices? Who is it that holds preferences? Who is it that is so attached to its likes and its dislikes, its fears and desires? That it's moving towards and moving away from things. Surrender is about the relinquishing those likes and dislikes, those cravings and aversions, to be aware of the dance of grasping, to be aware of how we hold inwardly, how we embrace that dance of grasping in consciousness, 
And how do we, when we embrace that dance of grasping in consciousness, as we embrace all things in consciousness, that when we are actually wholehearted in that embracing, we are not bound to that dance. Consciousness is actually not affected truly, deeply, in any way by that dance. That is just the passing show. No one says you have to be a dancer. That is just the passing show. And it re- that passing show reveals to us emptiness, it reveals to us factness, it reveals to us insubstantiality, and it reveals to us the true nature of awareness, because we see the expansiveness, the vastness of awareness that can embrace these hiccups, this arising, this passing, this dance of grasping, and yet ultimately that awareness is not affected in the slightest. It's not affected in the slightest. To understand that, to understand that, that we are not bound to that grasping, it is not who we are. That is not our true nature, that dance of grasping. It is not the true nature of anything. Then I fear really as we begin to explore the whole nature of impermanence. Impermanence reveals to us the nature of awareness, the nature of letting go, the nature of openness, the nature of understanding. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.